Bonjour, this is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of the American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which, along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society, is sponsoring this episode. Today I'm speaking with Mathieu Lefebvre, the co-founder of More in Common, a group that works to understand the forces driving us apart and to find common ground to help bring people together in order to tackle our shared challenges. More in Common works in France, the United States, the UK, and Germany. In late 2019, they published a large study of US polarization called Hidden Tribes, which was widely covered in the US media. This week, they've just published a new landmark report, Finding France, which takes a similar look at social division on this side of the Atlantic. Mathieu, you're an American despite your name and your beautiful French accent. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thanks for having me. More in Common is really doing some groundbreaking, fascinating work with an unusually international and transnational focus on some of the most pressing problems facing Western societies in general. What led you to start this organization? Um, so, as you were saying, what what we try to do, um, like many many people in the United States and and, and in Europe, we are. Um, very concerned about the way uh, things are going in Western democracies. And what we're trying to do is to understand what divides us in order to see what can bring us back together again. What are the stories and the messages and the narratives that can reunite our divided countries? Um, The starting point for More in Common is both um, personal and more of an intellectual side. The intellectual is, is pretty straightforward. Um, starting with, I was in, in, I was living in Boston, uh, in for September 11th and that, that had a huge impact on me. And I was living in Paris during the Bataclan attacks, um, which, uh, impacted so many people around the world, but I happened to live about a hundred meters from the Bataclan. So I walked by it every day with my kids. Um, and that really shook me, um, because it looked to me that like, I mean, not to be overly dramatic, but it looked to me like the start of a civil war of some kind. It was young French people killing other young French people in a concert. Yeah, it felt there was something much more visceral about that to me than 9-11, not to downplay 9-11, but that seemed more surreal and cinematic. And this felt, this was real life Mm. in in a different way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, 9-11 really impacted me uh, and, and impacted the whole world. And that that had a profound impact on my life uh, because uh, I then started my career in in war zones because I thought that's what where I I could make the biggest contribution. I actually lived in Afghanistan and went to Afghanistan to work on the peace efforts there. Limited success, I have to say. Um, And I never thought that I would be worried about the kind of breakdown of society and that start of the civil war again is an exaggeration at home right and the Bataclan if 9-11 was uh, a foreign uh, a, a problem that originated far away the Bataclan attack for me um, uh, was the symptom of a problem that was right here at home and the same problem is in the United Kingdom the same problem is in Germany the same problem is in the United States it's the the, the fabric of society is being torn apart and so that's what started us on our journey um, uh, to, to try to make a contribution to understanding 
what is going on in people's minds that can explain the type of polarization that we're seeing uh, in societies today. Right. And one of your co-founders uh, is the, the widower of, of the British MP, Joe Cox, who, who, was, who was murdered in, in England in 2016. Is that correct? So that um, the, 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 the murder of Joe Cox, the, the member of parliament in the United Kingdom, which uh, was just a few days before uh, uh, the Brexit vote, ha- had a big impact on us because we, we, we worked with, with her husband and, and many of the founding team at More in Common were very close to her. And as, as one of my other co-founders likes to say, it felt like it was history tapping us on the so- shoulder. So all of these events, the Bataclan, that h- horrible murder, but also the Brexit vote, Donald Trump's election just sort of prompted us to start a new organization and to try to make a contribution to figuring things out. And today it's 25 people and we're starting to, um, to, 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 to learn stuff as we go along. But what we're finding is that um, there are lots of common threads to what's happening mm-hmm. in all of these countries. I mean, I think there's great tensions about the future of work and what it means to have a job. There's great tensions about um, uh, the definitions of us and what we find in our in our work in France or in the United States is that there is a very large, very vocal camp that is trying to narrow the boundary of us. We also find that there, are, um, the, the impact of social media is having an, is is playing a role in all of the countries that we study. So there are many things that are comparable, but really, if you want to have an impact on this, you have to look at this on a national at a national level. So while I think there's a lot of value in comparisons, I also think that this battle will be largely won and lost at national level, which is why we have four national teams mm. working in these four different countries. For example, you know, the notion of community is so different in the United States and in France. You can't talk about the notion of community in the same way. I want to get to the some of these differences and maybe we can start by talking about your your real like groundbreaking 2018 report, uh, Hidden Tribes, which really crystallized what a lot of us have been um, sensing is increasingly going on in our politics and culture, um, certainly in America. To quote George Orwell by, by way of George Packer, who was one of the many journalists to cite your work, tribalism is the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit, placing it beyond good and evil and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. And some people might say, well, you know, look, human beings are tribal to some extent, and that's just a part of our nature, and so what's so bad about that? And one answer is that what's so dangerous about that is that when politics becomes a perpetual tribal war, um, as Packer argued in his, in his piece in The New Yorker, ends can justify almost any means. Is that correct? Is that what's really at stake? Or yeah, I think there's a there, there's a very strong appeal um, to tribalism now for for lots of reason, and I, I I do think that it is very dangerous. I mean, you could certainly see tribalism at play uh, in the vote uh, that happened this week uh, in on on the impeachment of the president and many many other. Uh, instances. But um, I think that what we tried to do in Hidden Tribes, and George Packer wrote about it beautifully, and many others did too, is to understand, to go 
sort of under the hood of tribalism. Like, why are people feeling this need to be so tribal? And I always come back to the one thing is that um, the appeal of the smaller us, of the, the closer tribe, whether it's the super progressive tribe, which we describe, which is represents about 8% of Americans, or the super conservative tribe. Um, on the other side, the strong appeal of those tribes is also a result of a failure to project into the future. We are um, failing to, I always say, um, we are failing to fall in love with the future. Mm, and yeah. therefore, we are, we are retreating to smaller tribes and i think that visions of nostalgia when 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 we when the social fabric was uh i guess in the rose tinted glasses we regard it through when, when it was held together in a more exactly yeah and the fail exactly right i think the failure to fall in love with the future is making people go back to some sort of imagined past a sort of golden age myth when of we were like, great exactly yeah. when we were great and uh and, uh, and, and to sort of protect it. I, 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 I always think about Donald Trump's wall in, in this, the border wall with the border with Mexico in, in this sense, because very clearly that border wall serves only one purpose. It has nothing to do with preventing people coming from Mexico. It's a signal to the people who are already in to say, this That's is right. the boundary of us. Um, it protects. It doesn't prevent any right, people. people fly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> just overstay their but, visas. But yeah, and I, I was talking to a scholar of China recently, and uh, she told me that um, the Great Wall of China, archaeologists now their theory was that it served no protective purpose. It just served a signaling mechanism to the people already inside China to say we're we're looking after you, we're protecting you. But it wasn't actually protecting from anybody. That's fascinating. And that that's for me. That's like a physical embodiment of the narrowing of the tribe and mm -hmm. the strong appeal to to tribalism. But I think it's kind of on us. And on us, I mean people who share our values about uh, um, celebrating more open societies where the, the, the definition of us is enlarged. I think we have failed to tell that story well. And what we're seeing, whether it's Brexit Britain or the rise of the far right in France or Donald Trump's America in the United States, is a result of that failure to tell a new story of us, to tell and, a and, new story of belonging. And one of the findings that was optimistic uh, in Hidden Tribes was that most people actually are hungry for some type of resolution and are not actually um, comfortable with the increasing polarization. Most people are exhausted by it, right? And so yes. that, that's an opportunity to, to, to reach the majority. Yes, yes. I think it's both an opportunity and also a, a, a threat. Um, and um, so the good news is that, that it is a majority. Um, it's 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 really about eight out of ten Americans who 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 say they are completely exhausted with the nature of public debate, the polarization on TV, turning on TV and feeling like it's a country fifty fifty split, agreeing on nothing. Um, they're exhausted by it. So the good news is that they are a majority. The bad news is that they are exhausted. They're sort of checking out see, of yeah. the system. So they're not participating they're not participating in civic life because of their exhaustion so it is an opportunity but there is some urgency to re-engaging um, uh, those uh, those those people and so you can't make uh, direct comparisons perhaps we have to be careful about projecting some of America's uh, tribal 
problems onto France. But what, uh, your, what, what, what's, what's the upshot of your new report uh, released just this week, uh, Finding France, a People in Search of Their Country? So um, as you have, have spoken about uh, many times and very eloquently, uh, the, the, uh, as you said, I'm both American and French. Um, which doesn't make me Canadian, which I get a lot. Sometimes I say like, oh, I'm half French and I'm half American. And people are like, oh, you're Canadian. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. But anyway, the comparisons between these two democracies are always very, very interesting. And you've spoken a lot about the laïcité model in France and how that's just an interesting vision. But as you know, the, the DNA of both countries are very different. But there are similarities. One difference I would say is that I think the, the disease... Um, that is the rise of the far right. Um, I mean, disease is probably a harsh word, but it is a factor of French political life and has been for 30 years. A real far right. A real far right that is present, that is present in every election, um, that is uh, arguably the biggest party in France now. That has been a feature of the French political landscape for decades now. And whereas some Americans, not all obviously, but some Americans discovered populism and authoritarian populism with Donald Trump, uh, that is, n nobody has discovered. Um, That's been here. It's been here for a while. Um, and, and so that, that, that is one, one difference. Um, but there are also similarities. I mean, we, we do detect in this new study, um, La France Enquête, or Finding France in English, um, growing polarization uh, in France, quite similar to the United States. So, for example, when we asked the French uh, sample a question about should we reopen the should France reopen the dark pages of its history, including its colonial history, in order to move forward? Or should we just let that be and move on? Uh, there is a small progressive segment of, of society that says, yes, absolutely, we must talk about the Algerian war, because otherwise we cannot move forward, because it affects our view of immigration, it affects a lot of the conversation. And this is particularly true of young people in the French banlieue, who come mm -hmm. from an immigration story, and they feel this need to talk about uh, uh, the colonial past and a need for uh, yeah a need for recognition exactly and, and that uh, is actually a, a discourse happening in the United States very yes. much so with, around slavery the, this idea that we haven't fully absolutely even more so in France yeah and I have to say that I personally um, feel that there is a need to have a conversation about about Algeria but this, this is not the popular view this is not the popular view and this progressive segment is very isolated and. One, this, this segment is on one side of the argument and all five other of our segments, including the left behind who made up a lot of the yellow vest movement, including the, the more identitarian nationalist segment, they are all on the other side. They so yeah. yeah, so there's a lot, of, um, a lot of, of polarization going on. There is a similar exhaustion about the nature of public debate in France. Um, I think French... The media conversation in France is re reaching an American-style uh, level of polarization, and and almost nine out of ten people in our French survey say that they find the nature of public debate too aggressive, and they're very concerned about it. But there are there are a lot of differences, so I'll just I'll just highlight a few. Um, one thing is that 
In a country that seems to agree on very little in France, there is one theme that they all agree on, which is the environment, and that's very positive. Yeah, that, that strikes me. The, the French right, the National Rally, formerly the Front National, are making inroads, ecological inroads, with working-class voters who are concerned about that. I mean, that is something that's just gone from the American landscape. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, it, what we find in, in France, and I think we'd find the same in Germany, is that there is no eco-skeptic segment. There is no eco-skepticism uh, in France. Somebody who knows this field much better than I do said that that is because we don't have a eco-skeptic media uh, in oh, France. Yeah. The, 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 I believe I've heard you call this the Rupert Murdoch effect, right? right? Yes. So there is no Rupert Murdoch press in, in place like France and Germany. And somebody who I was speaking to who knows this field much better than I do says that, yeah, that's why there are no eco-skeptics because there's no Rupert Murdoch media. I don't know if and that's you know, true. But. Um, there's also nothing contradictory about uh, um, a populist xenophobic movement who believes in blood and soil also wanting to keep the soil free of pollutants. Absolutely. I mean, that actually makes a lot of it does. sense. It does. I think that the, the, I think uh, not to get sidetracked on Nazis, but I think that the Nazis were actually concerned about the environment. This the, is a, like, a, like a far-right concern that is, is the outlier would be America or Australia. Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, I think this level of unity, so seven out of 10 people in France say that, yes, the environment is an issue that can unite us beyond our divisions. I think the headline there is very positive. Um, however, there are dangers about who is going to tell that story. And so it's a sort of call to action to moderates uh, to really... Uh, uh, to not lose that issue or cede that issue, that issue to the, to exactly. the xenophobic, yes. right? Yeah. And in that sense, it's very interesting to watch what's happening in Austria because, as you know, there's a sort of new coalition between Greens and Conservatives, and, and, and let's, see, let's see where that goes. So there are very good things. Another thing that really, really struck me... Um, and I think there are similarities with, with the United States. Uh, and George Packer's amazing book, The Unwinding, was a real source of inspiration for us in starting more in common. When we asked French people, describe to us your ideal France, and we listed items, the top three overall really amazed me. Number three, lower inequalities. Our ideal France is a France with lower inequalities. That's fairly... Normal. Number two, our ideal France is a country with more safety, more security. They want to be secure. So, the social safety, or you you mean they mean safety. physical safety, Phys physical physical safety. safety. Yeah, this it's is a country. Not, it doesn't feel like a very physically dangerous country to me. The the paroxysms of terrorism, notwithstanding, it's it's a much safer society than than U.S. society. So. Um, here, I think it's useful to distinguish between hard fact and perception. There is a strong perception with the Yellow Vest movement, with cable news projecting you know, police violence mm -hmm. a lot and, and, and also uh, civil violence, that there is a widespread perception in France now that the country is not safe. It, it, it is safe if you look at data, but yeah. the perception, you know, who cares about facts when perceptions are, are so important? So there is this notion of safety, and particularly among the hard, more identitarian right-wing segments, this perception mm -hmm. of this country is no longer safe for people like me is very strong. Um, but what really struck me is what came out as number one, as the base of this new Maslow 
needs pyramids is we want a France where we are treated with respect and we are heard. Mm-hmm. And that says so much about the state of France. People want to be heard. They want to be listened to. And the Yellow Vest movement was a very bright fluorescent manifestation of like, I want you to see me. I'm right. wearing a fluorescent jacket. Please <laughs> right. see me. It's like, yeah, that's on the nose. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 um, and I think there are many parallels with Brexit Britain. I think the vote about Brexit was a lot about please see us now mm-hmm. um, and listen to us and understand us. I think a lot of that explains... Um, how the Democratic Party went wrong over the last few years in the United States by not seeing um, uh, these sort of left-behind populations. This call for respect is so strong in France. It's really, it's, it's, it's really quite, um, quite striking. That's interesting. I, I mean, uh, not to get waylaid um, too much on this, but I think it's interesting. Why is that so much more the case in France than in another country you look at, uh, Germany? So I think that um, the under the facade of stability in Merkel's Germany, um, we actually detect a lot of great sources for concern. Um, our data in Germany, which is also available on our website, um, suggests that the rise of the AFD is perfectly understandable. Uh, and will continue. Per- one particular source of concern for us in Germany is that the segment of the population who are holding Germany together, the sort of stabilizers of, of German society, are very old. Mm. And they, as they, you know, mm-hmm. move on, as they, as they start to shrink, um, a far more nervous and angry segment is going to become the center of, of German political life. So behind this facade of, of stability in Germany lies lots of concern. And that, that seems to be, actually, you could make, that sounds to me like you're describing the United States as well. Yeah. On both sides, the younger, the, the, the younger politicians coming up are, you, you know, even if you look at, the, like, members of the squad and mm. things like that, I mean, they're, they're, go- they're not going to... Um, how do I say? They're going to increase polarization too. It seems. Mm, yeah, I mean, what what we find, um, particularly in the United States, is that the media industry, political energy, there is a, a there is a there is a polarization complex, as, as, as there was a sort of industrial complex or that finds its energy on the wings to raise money in political campaigns in the United States. It's easier to take more extreme positions on both sides than to be uh, in the middle. Are there reasons for optimism and hope? But what, what are some of the positives that you found in the, uh, in the Finding France study? So uh, the first one is that... Um, over 80% of people think, yes, our divisions are very high in France. And, and the, of the four countries that we look at, um, I am most worried about France. I think France oh, really? has, has the biggest, the, the fundamentals of France worry me the most. More than the United States of More America. More than the United States, oh, wow. yes, yes. I think that, um, I, I think the United States, the American dream uh 
has taken a beating recently for many people, but it's still there. It still has that power of a unifying narrative. Um, I think in France, the French dream has taken a longer beating for many generations, and it's going to be harder to rewrite and to reinvent. Although with, with the exception of this green story, I think, I think a green news story of us has real potential, but we need to get to it urgently. Um, but I am very worried about France. However, there are, uh, there are things that are, that, are, that are hopeful. Eight out of 10 people say, yes, the state of division in, in a place like France is incredibly high, but we must get out of this situation. We have to overcome our divisions and we can only do it together. So uh, uh, the expression in France is on doit se serrer les coudes. We have to be together and get over this together. So there's a mm -hmm. strong aspiration to be us. There's a strong aspiration for commons. There's also um, the question of Islam uh, in France and, and Muslims in France is the it crystallizes all of these different fears. Muslims in France are the point of crystallization for all of this. And there are different points of crystallization in the United Kingdom over mm -hmm. Brexit. It was workers from Eastern Europe in the United States. It's also um, immigrants from Central America, etc. You know, each country has a has a a minority to point its finger at, but in France, clearly the question of, of Muslims is so central. However, even there, we find reasons to be hopeful. Um, if you watch the news in France, you might very well think that this is an Islamophobic country. It's not. Um, a large majority of our, our population, uh, the population in France, uh, uh, is very worried about the nature of, of hostility towards Muslims, 62% on average, um, which is, uh, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, if you know French society, that is still, still quite a lot, including 55% of people on our hard right identitarian segment say oh. they are worried about the climate of hostility towards Muslims. That's, that, that gives me yeah, I mean, that's interesting, and it, it, it makes me think, you know, France, unlike the United States, officially doesn't recognize race, doesn't count by groups by ethnicity, um, has struck racial language from its official documents. Uh, and I wonder in your research how much you find that people genuinely believe, don't just pay lip service to, but genuinely believe in the Republican ideal that there are not these differences. Uh, it, it, because it seems to me that if... It, if we took seriously the rep Republican ideal, that would really be a healthier society. H to what extent is that actually um, working in practice, though? So th this very French notion of colorblindness and the Republican ideal and uh, secularism, laïcité, is, um, is a major part of the French story, and I think it's taken a beating recently. People in our survey and in others are still very attached to these notions. They are very attached to them as pillars of, of, of the society, but they interpret them differently. What we find in our survey is that basically there are three Frances living sort of parallel lives, and they each have a different interpretation of this Republican model. So there's a sort of settled France that's doing pretty well, um, you know, they're the pillars of the system. There's this very polemic France on the left and the right that occupies the media space. And then there's this forgotten France, which is the largest group, which is sort of these left behind. They project 
this Republican model. They project onto this Republican model. They are all attached to it, but they project on it different things. And essentially the difference is, what is the definition of we? They're very attached to the Republican model of we, but, but identitarians, for example, say this French we is defined on narrow ethnic religious grounds. It's basically a white Christian France. Um, so they're attached to that model in only in so far that it serves to defend the interest of this to defend the interest of this narrow we. My own view on on the the, the French Republican model is that because people are still attached to it, I think it it's still got the power to unite. But I think it needs to be updated because too often it's being weaponized mm-hmm. now because the definitions are slightly unclear. Um, it can easily be weaponized. For example, it is too often weaponized against uh, people of Muslim faith in France who sometimes feel that these notions of secularism are essentially a tool against them now. Form of erasure. Uh, exactly. So it, it, I, I think it sort of needs to be updated, and I think that's a quite urgent project. What can some of us do, what can we as individuals do in our own day-to-day interactions and lives and choices to contribute to a decrease in polarization in our societies? Um, I think it is very useful for us all to um, go through our daily routine, our media consumption, the people we talk to, and just review them and say, who am I interacting with here? Like, just, just, And what are the places and occasions that I have in my daily life to go outside of my own tribe. Where do I meet these people? Is it at a a library like this? Um, Public libraries have an enormous role to play in places like France uh, as people, places where people meet. Is it in the cafe? Is it in, you know, where do I meet people outside of my bubble? That's the first thing that I would say. And let's try. Let's try to, you know, do things differently to meet, meet people who are not in our in our own tribe. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is this thing about respect and being heard. What can we all do to answer the 49% of people who place being heard as their number one wish for an ideal country? What can we do to really listen uh, to people who are, who, are, who are trying to say something? They're trying to say that they're left behind. They're trying to say that they're not heard. What, what, we all have a role to play. Um, but at a more institutional level, what our work tries to do at More in Common is to contribute to the emergence of a large new force um, with businesses and faith organizations and public libraries and intellectuals and writers like yourself to say, we all have a role to play in you know falling in love with the future again uh, in writing that story together we all have a role to play and uh, I, I i i honestly can't think of anything more urgent and pressing because i really do worry about the next civil war I, I know that sounds very dramatic um i i used to live in places like kandahar and I'm not suggesting that uh, you know the left bank of Paris where we are here is going to turn into Kandahar, but I also think it would be foolish not to worry about that. Not tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow. So I, I think there's an urgent call to action in this for all of us. But yeah, I, I love the way you talk about falling in love with the future. The future has taken quite a beating 
in the past decade or so, <laughs> maybe a bit more. But it Indeed. seems like it seems like it's worth uh, rekindling uh, our affection for it again. Uh, are, are there any interesting books that you've been reading lately, or any that you would recommend? Um, yeah, I, um, I I have to say that in, in this this field of falling in love uh, with with the future. Uh, again, I have um, been very inspired by a book that actually my cousin wrote. So I'm sorry to be quoting a book my cousin wrote. No shame in family plugs. Yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. But um, it's called Paradise Now. Um, and uh, it's written by Chris Jennings. Um, and I was very inspired by it because he looks at uh, the stories of utopians in the 18th century and 19th century. And many of these utopian movements left Europe because they were sick of the status quo and went to the United States where there was open land and, you know, they went to Texas and and and, and the West and to create sort of new ways to organize societies. So the Shakers and the Oneida and the Fourierists uh, movement. And that's a book that's really, has really inspired me because I, I do think that part of falling in love with the future again is to be to to try utopian experiments. I think we're not being bold enough and dreaming about new ways to organize societies. I don't think any of the, the these movements actually um, were a success on a large scale, but they contributed to our thinking that it was possible to organize life uh, and society in a different way. Um, and I think we need a little bit more of that right now, and particularly in our relationship with nature. I think we need to write that story differently. One of the things that we find in our in our work is that while people are very mobilized to protect nature, they are not buying into the current climate movement narrative. That isn't working for them. They want a new story. So I think we need new utopians to write that story. Mathieu, uh, you're doing brilliant and necessary work. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Thank you for listening today. The American Library in Paris has served English-speaking readers in Paris and elsewhere since 1920. To read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on theamericanscholar.org slash podcast. Au revoir. See you next time.